If you brought your Bibles, you can open them to Mark chapter 1. While you're doing that, all our kids right now, I see uh, Mr. David at the back door. You guys can get ready and roll out. Roll out with him. Make us proud. Enjoy your kids' praise. Grow as young followers. Grow as young disciples. Little Jesus Padawans. I don't, I don't know. They, wore, they both wore robes, right? Um, I don't know where I'm going today. Um, <clears throat> last week, we began a new teaching series out of uh, the book of Mark, the central gospel of Mark. And this series is all wrapped up in this idea of mystery. Last week, we talked about this idea of, uh, just, just as an introduction to Mark, um, the Latin phrase, mysterium tremendum ac faciosum. Do you remember what that means? Uh, a mark is the terrifying and fascinating mystery. There, there's this language all wrapped up in Mark. Maybe two of the most common, most frequently used words in, in Mark's gospel are the words amazed and terrified. But it's okay. It's not a mystery that, uh, that is unknowable or undiscoverable. But in the Bible, this word mystery, mysterion, in uh, Mark chapter 4, 11, Jesus says, the mysterion, the mystery of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you to know. The mystery, mysterion in Mark, the mystery uh, uh, of God in Scripture is that you can know him. And who is the mystery? Jesus Christ. So last week we began and we talked a, a little bit about John the Baptist. We went through uh, Jesus' baptism and the incredible parting of the clouds, the pronouncement from heaven, this is my son, proof of who he is. And it is that question of who is Jesus is going to rise up again and again and again in Mark. It's going, to, it's going to show up. And Jesus came in verse 15 of chapter 1. It says, the time promised by God has come at last. He announced the kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. So today we're going to dive in a little bit more into uh, chapter 1. And I want to tell a couple of stories of um, miracles, miraculous healings, miraculous works of Jesus in chapter 1. I'm taking this off. That's weird. Um, and then um, we're going to kind of back up and, and look at, look at these, uh, these mysteries, look at these miracles uh, especially as they relate to the call of God. And I got a lot of ground to cover. So are you with me? Are you ready? Can you handle this? All right, let's begin in uh, chapter 1, verse 21. Let's look at one of these first miracles, these next eight verses. Jesus and his companions went to the town of Capernaum. Everything in Mark is uh, location-based. It's all GPS. He's going to bounce around from village to village to village to village and then make a beeline for the city, for Jerusalem. And it begins in Capernaum. When the Sabbath day came, he went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed, there's that word, amazed at his teaching. For he taught with real authority, quite unlike the teachers of religious law. And suddenly a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit began shouting, Why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God, and Jesus cut him short. Be quiet. Come out of the man, he ordered. At that, the evil spirit screamed, threw the man into a convulsion, and then came out of him. Amazement, there's that word again, gripped the audience, 
and they began to discuss what had happened. What sort of new teaching is this? They asked excitedly. He has such authority. Even evil spirits obey his orders. And the news about Jesus spread quickly throughout the entire region of Galilee. The scene opens in Capernaum in the, in the synagogue. Uh, a, a synagogue was a, was a teaching place. Uh, uh, it, wasn't, it was not the temple. It was not the place of worship. But the synagogue was where the, the rabbis and the scribes would get together and gather around Scripture and, and pour themselves into it. The synagogue was a place of education, uh, uh, almost like a, a, a grad school, a theological grad school where, where Scriptures, where the ancient scrolls were, were, were discussed and, and uh, new ideas and new theologies were, were discussed and interpreted. And Jesus begins by going into this synagogue, and, and they recognize right off the bat that he has this authority quite unlike the teachers of religious law, because that day uh, you would begin as a scribe, which means you just would, would, would copy down the words of Torah. You would, you would recite the, the words of Moses. And as you became more developed as a scribe, as you devoted yourself more and more and more to these teachings, you began to interpret for yourself, and you would have a teacher over you, a rabbi, who is who is helping you with their interpretation. The rabbi is giving his yoke upon you. That's the other language Jesus uses throughout Scripture. And so as you learn from this rabbi, you take on his yoke, his interpretation, his understanding of Scripture before eventually you go and you have your own yoke. You have your own interpretation of Scripture and how it works and what God is doing and how he is moving and as a part of that process, what you would do as a young scribe or a young rabbi is to always cite your sources. Because there was very little new thought, but it was always, uh, you would cite your previous teacher. It would be Bar Zacharias or, or Bar um, Philip or Bar someone. that you would, you would cite your teacher in everything. But Jesus didn't do that. He never cites another teacher. He never, he never cites an, an authority other than himself. Jesus interprets scripture as one who has the right to say what it means. He doesn't need to cite a reference or anyone else, as was the custom of the scribes. When Jesus spoke, it was like wind from heaven. And something uh, radical happens. They're sitting in Bible class, and suddenly a, a man with an evil spirit, unclean spirit, demon, these words are all used interchangeably in Mark, enters, causing quite a disruption. And the ancient world believed deeply in these, these spirits. It's, it's an experience that happens a lot over and over again in Scripture. Um, primarily evil, kind of this idea of the evil eye, but... But whether you believe it or not, they, this culture believed that there were these forces at work, constantly at work, to, to trip you up, if that makes sense. They, they were constantly at work to bring about your destruction, and the world is filled with these kind of forces, these kind of, of devils. And this one comes into the synagogue where Jesus is teaching with authority and says, I know who you are. I remember one of the fundamental questions of Mark is this mystery of who is Jesus. 
But again and again and again and again in Mark, throughout Mark, the demons, the spiritual forces, the forces from heaven, they all know without a doubt, without a question, exactly who Jesus is. So this evil spirit, this, this demonic, unclean spirit speaks through this man and says, I know who you are. Later in uh, chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, it says, Whenever those possessed by evil spirits caught sight of him, the spirits would throw them to the ground in front of him, shrieking, You are the Son of God. But Jesus commanded not to reveal who he was. God and spiritual forces recognize him, but it, it's not time for the fullness of the mystery of Christ to be revealed. Jesus speaks with authority and unclean spirits obey. The spirit is cast out of the man just by the words, just by the very words of Jesus. The spirit recognizes the authority of Jesus. The people see it. Do you? Do you recognize the authority of Christ? What authority does he have to speak into your life? To, to speak about your desires and what's really important. If Christ were to speak into your life today, what would he cast out? What have you been holding on to that he would call out of you? Self-doubt or fear, anxiety, worry, worry idle, selfishness, or sin. You see, the authority wasn't just in his words, but the power to back those words up. And the crowds are amazed, is what it says in verse 27. And they say, what sort of new teaching is this? We're referring to his power, referring not to just his ability to interpret, but, but the power through which he speaks. That, that word new is, is a, a, a not something uh, uh, recent, but but this is a new in the sense of something unprecedented. No one has ever taught or spoke with this kind of authority. It is, it is previously just completely unknown. And the mystery spreads. Let's look at the next story. The next story of healing comes immediately after this in verses 29 through 34. Go ahead and put those on the screen. After Jesus left the synagogue with James and John, they went to Simon and Andrew's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever. They told Jesus about her right away, so he went to her bedside, took her by the hand, and helped her sit up. Then the fever left her, and she prepared a meal for him. That evening after sunset, many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. The whole town gathered at the door to watch. So Jesus healed many people who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. But because the demons knew who he was, he did not allow them to speak. All right, so we've moved from the synagogue, this place of teaching, this place of understanding, this place of theology, this place of interpretation, uh, where Jesus cast out an evil spirit. Now we've moved into a home. It's Simon Peter's mother-in-law. She's suffering from a fever. Now, I, I love this, and I don't want you to miss this. We can't spend a lot of time here, but I don't want you to miss this, that, 
um, Simon, who is later called Peter, was married. Probably has kids. He has a family. He griped about his mother-in-law just like you do. Here's a question for you. How did he balance family with the call of God to follow him? Have you guys ever struggled with this? Well, I've got um, uh, uh, all this other stuff I've got to do. I've got a schedule packed full of stuff. I've got family and kids and mother-in-laws and all of this other stuff. Have any of you ever struggled with how do I balance all of this stuff with the call of God in my own life? It's something we're going to come back to in just a few minutes. But in classic uh, Mark style, Mark gives us, the, us this, this incredible picture of Jesus. He's, the, in a lot of ways, the most human uh, image of Jesus. And so when he finds out that, uh, that Peter's mother-in-law, Simon Peter's mother-in-law, is ill with high fever, Jesus goes to her bedside, right? This is, this is just an awesome picture. And Jesus goes to her bedside, and, and he took her by the hand and helped her to sit up, and the fever left her. And it says immediately she prepared a meal for them. It's this awesome picture of uh, what Christ is here for, what he's, what he's here for, for his mission. Um, it, it is this idea of being saved to serve. She, she is saved by Christ, rescued by him, not for her own benefit, but for the benefit of others. In verse 32, it says, at this point, many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. I came across while studying this awesome etching from, uh, from Rembrandt. Uh, I know it's kind of hard to see, um, but I wanted to show it to you just to get the, the emotion of this scene. It says in, in these words, it says, the whole town gathered at the door to watch. To, to, to take in the mystery, demon-possessed and, and sick and lame and hurting and lost people are, are coming to Jesus. Crowds, the, the crowd reaches out to Jesus with hope and desperation, and Jesus reaches out to the crowd with power and authority and compassion. And then if we follow the text, in verses 35 through 39, there's a, there's a break in the action. Jesus has gone to the synagogue. He's gone to Simon mother's, uh, Simon's mother-in-law's house. He's done healing. People are gathered around him. They're crowding around him. And I, I want you to see just there's a break in the action in verses 35 through 39. And it's important um, because Jesus offers us this example about rhythm. And in verse 35, it says, Before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. Despite the chaos and the busyness and the attention, Jesus finds time to pray and remembers his mission. He won't be distracted when the disciples come and and uh, eventually find him. He says, we must go on to other towns as well, and I will preach to them too. That is why I came. 
And what he finds in this isolated place is his calling again. What he finds in this isolated place and, and, and the, uh, maybe the example for us to follow as he's demonstrating how to do life. He's demonstrating a, a, a rhythm for all of us to follow. And the rhythm is work, rest, and pray. And this rhythm keeps us in tune with who God is and what God wants for our life. How many of you uh, uh, have a rhythm similar to work, rest, pray? Or does your rhythm look more like work, 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 rest, work some more? It's Sunday, maybe I'll pray. You just see from the example of Jesus, even as crowds are gathering around him, I mean, they're, they're clinging to the frame of the door just to get a, get a look, just to get a peek in. Early in the morning, Jesus is creating rhythm for God to speak, God, his Father, to speak into his life, to call him, to remind him of his purpose. So finally, one final healing, healing story. We've been to the synagogue. We've been to Simon, mother-in-law. And now we go to the road in verses 40 through 45. A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. If you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean, he said. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said. Be healed. Instantly, the leprosy disappeared and the man was healed. Then Jesus sent him on his way with a stern warning. Don't tell anyone about this. Instead, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. But the man went and spread the word, proclaiming to everyone what had happened. As a result, large crowds soon surrounded Jesus, and he couldn't publicly enter a town anymore. He had to stay out in the secluded places. But people from everywhere kept coming to him. Do you see this mystery is spreading? I want to talk just briefly about this. Leprosy is uh, this, this horrible disease. It still exists today. Uh, we, it, it's totally curable, um, uh, resolvable, um, but it, it's still in some parts of our world exist. Uh, leprosy is the skin condition. could be a couple of different things, but essentially what it, what it meant was that you were repulsive to others. Um, a, a leper is repulsive to others and themselves. Um, no other disease reduces man to such a wreck. Uh, and, and one of the most devastating things about leprosy is that it's, is its lifespan, that a person who contracts this disease has a lifespan of 9 to 20 years. So it's something you live with for a while. Do you get that? Um, and all during that time, you're ostracized. The advanced stages, you become disfigured. Um, but, but, but I, I think at least as equally bad as what it does to you physically is what it does to you emotionally as you become so disconnected, banished, totally shunned from others, from any contact or connection with anyone. Like, I know it doesn't, Mark doesn't elaborate on this, but it says in verse 40, a man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus begging to be healed. That, uh, that's against the law. Just imagine this scene for a second. Someone with leprosy, uh, by law they have to cry out, unclean, unclean, so that the infection that they have doesn't spread. 
And when you are, are in the mall with your kids and someone walks up behind you screaming unclean, what are you going to do with them? You're just going to casually step aside or are you going to do that, that like football move of picking up a fumble and like running? So imagine when this man approaches Jesus, what happens? I mean, the, the crowds are, are parting. The crowds are scattering. And, wh and what do you think they're saying? Think they have kind words for this person to threaten them and threaten their lives and threaten their kids with, with uncleanness? Man, this guy's bold, isn't he? And he comes and he kneels before Jesus and says, if you're willing, you can help me and make me clean. Um, you think Jesus, like, all right, so the man, this leper is coming. Do you think Jesus took a step back? Or did he just stand there? And how many times, how long had it been since someone with leprosy came to another person and that person just stood their ground? You already see something about the willingness of this person. You always, again, the mystery of who he is is rising to the surface. Who stands there and just lets a leper approach them? Who doesn't run? Who doesn't cower? Who doesn't back away? Who doesn't create some sort of barrier or space between this person? And the willingness of the leper is this awesome scene where he just says, if you are willing, you can make me, you can help me and make me clean. And verse 41, I love this verse. Underline it, highlight it. Man, this is, crochet it, put it on your wall. Verse 41, it says, moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him and says what we already know. I am willing. And the man is instantly healed. I love the rest of the story. Jesus kind of gives him some, some, some really clear instructions about there is this whole process for presenting yourself before the priest as clean, and you actually got a certificate that says, I'm clean and spick and span. And um, there, it's kind of this long, drawn-out ordeal. And Jesus says, I want you to commit to this process. I want you to you know, go through this process of proving to everyone that you're clean. Um, but... I don't want you to go and tell anyone about this. I just want you to go to this pro go through this process. And it says the, the, in verse 45, the man went and spread the word, proclaiming to everyone what had happened. Uh, he does the exact opposite of what Jesus tells him. Um, but can you blame him? I mean, you know, like what would you do? Who would you go see first? You think this man had family or friends, maybe children, grandchildren? Like you get this sense of what happened to him is, is uncontainable. <laughs> Does that make sense? It's just this incredible thing. If you will, the, the leper spots represent our own sinfulness. 
in the way that, that this horrible disease drove a wedge between, between a man and his family and um, between a man and society and the world. It's the same way that sin ostracizes us from God. Sin creates this, this distance between man and God, yet Jesus, the only one who is able to forgive our sin, says with a touch, I am willing. And with his own body, touches us, removes our sin, restoring us into right relationship with God again. So we have three stories of miraculous works, mysterious works, works of healing in the synagogue and in the mother-in-law's home and, and on the street. And already we're getting this picture of, of, of Jesus and, and who he is. But I want to back up a little bit in Mark to verses 16 through 19. The verses preceding all of this, um, Jesus has come and said, the time promised by God has come at last. And then I want to set a scene. He moves to the Sea of Galilee. It is a place filled with the, the, the smell of nets and ocean air. Do you guys know that smell? Uh, it, it smells like Pensacola. You know, it, it smells like Destin. It smells like, uh, I'm assuming it does. I don't know. Um, but boats. And along the shoreline, there are men with the, the, the casting and, and mending nets. There's the wind off the water, the smell of the shore. And it's into that scene that Jesus walks. As on One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fish for a living. And Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little further up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a boat repairing their nets. He called them at once, and they also followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. Simon, Andrew, James, and John. Some have said, as, as in verse 15, Jesus proclaims the the coming of the kingdom of heaven. Now he must begin to staff this kingdom. He must begin to fill it, and he goes to the seashore to do that. Simon and Andrew are together. Simon is Simon Peter, whose mother-in-law we just talked about. Peter is the, is the story that we're reading now. We think Mark is, is Peter's interpreter. Mark is Peter's transcriber. So the words that you're hearing, the words you're reading are the story of the eyewitness to all of this. Peter, as transcribed, as recorded by uh, Mark, who he called even his own son. Mark is the good news of Jesus Christ as eyewitnessed by Peter. And in verse 17, it says, Come. Jesus says to these men, come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. A couple of important things to note about the call of God. Maybe the first thing is uh, to recognize that the call of God is inconvenient. He doesn't call when it's convenient to the men. Uh, they're in the middle of their life duties, right? Right? This is, this is how they make a living. This is how they provide. They're at work. 
He has a, we know Simon Peter, we know he has a family. We know that means he has bills to pay and food and clothing to provide and soccer games to attend. The call of God is inconvenient. Some of you are waiting for a gap in the duties of your life. Some of you are waiting for, for some space in the duties of your life to respond to the call of God. But you and I know the truth. There is no gap. Well, I've got small kids. I don't, I don't have time to join a small group. Well, I'm, I'm retired, so I don't, I don't really have time to volunteer at the Nashville Rescue Mission. Or I've, I've you know, maybe, you know, I, I hear this sometimes, maybe when my kids are grown, I'll have more time. Uh, older adults with, without kids, is that true? If my kids are grown or when I'm retired, then I can do more for God. Or, or I'm, you know, I'm retired, I've kind of done my duty, I've kind of, you know, I've, I've, I've done my time, now is my time to relax, now is not my time to, to serve in the leadership or join the eldership. This is, I've kind of done my work, this is kind of my time now. Life will never Create space for God. Your schedule isn't going to miraculously place some, somehow create space for the call of God in your life. It's just not going to happen. Nets are always going, going to need mending. Boats are always going to need tending. Am I right, Lee Coulter? Yeah. So into the midst of our busyness, I'm going to get in your business, in, into the midst of your schedule, into the midst of your career, into the midst of your family, wades the person of Jesus Christ, and he says, follow me. And he wades not just into the busyness of our life, but we know from the stories that follow that he wades into the sin of our life. Jesus sees, seems to see right through our masks and disguises and calls us not to just calls us uh, not just out of our vocation but our preoccupation with sin and death and Jesus says follow me I want to interject a question into this story at this point do you think Jesus had Peter, Andrew, James, and John in mind when he went to the shore that day? Did, did Jesus already have these, in particular, specific guys picked out? Or do you think that Jesus just kind of had a general call to follow him that day as he walked along the shore? I know scripture doesn't tell us exactly. Um, um, was it, was it a specific call to these specific guys, or was Jesus walking down the, the shore calling everyone he met to follow him? 
That's an intriguing question, I think, because um, what if Jesus is, is just, just let me interject this. What if Jesus went to that shore that day, not to find these four specific followers, but what if Jesus went to the shore that day just to find followers, and these four, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, are the only four that answered the call of God that day? What if Jesus called many people to follow him that day? And only these four answered. I can think of lots of reasons why, why to, to not follow Jesus that day, right? I mean, we know James and John, father and hired hands, are sitting in the boat. They're doing work. James and John get up and leave the work of their father at that moment. Jesus calls us to follow him not at a time of our convenience, but he calls us at his convenience. Are you with me? Let's talk about the call of God in this one more, this one more part. Something else intriguing to me, especially about this, this calling part. Um, do you think it is the first time these men encountered Jesus? Uh, I'm desperate for some backstory from Mark here. Uh, because the way Mark presents it um, is that Jesus just walks down the shore and sees some random guys that, that potentially he never has laid eyes on before and calls them to follow him. Now, I want to read, read that and say, well, surely, surely this wasn't the first time they met. Surely they, they have been friends, maybe they knew each other, maybe they grew up together, or maybe, maybe they had already been hearing some of, of Jesus' teachings, but Mark doesn't give us any hint. I mean, that may be the case, but Mark doesn't give us any hint of that happening at all. In Mark, there's no backstory. Mark lets us wrestle with, with the tension of this kind of first-time meeting. Um, and, and the tension is that surely these men would not drop what they're doing and follow a complete and utter stranger. Except that's exactly what they do. You see, I, I think it's important to view this, this encounter as a, as a first meeting. And, and here's why. When Jesus says, follow me, he doesn't invite them to church. He, he doesn't invite them into the synagogue. Uh, he, he doesn't invite them into a theological system or doctrine. He doesn't invite them uh, to, to ethical systems or moral theories. He doesn't invite them to pledge their allegiance to a denomination or religion. Jesus simply says, follow me. He asked them to give their unshakable loyalty to a man. They, he asked them to give their unshakable loyalty to the person of Jesus Christ. 
And I think the disciples follow him, Andrew and Simon and James and John. I think they follow him because of a personal reaction, not to, to necessarily even to his teaching. They couldn't have possibly known all of his teachings, could they? Not, not because he was a part of, of a specific church or a specific religion or a specific domination, den, denomination. Um, interesting um, tongue-in-cheek word I'm out there. Um, anyway, the disciples follow him because of a personal reaction to the person of Jesus Christ. Are you with me? It wasn't about a teaching or something he said, but because of who he is. They didn't even follow him because he was, he was promising some easier path, right? He didn't promise a, an easier life or an easier job. I mean, he's going to give them the task of, I'm going to teach you to make, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Well, what the heck is that? You know, like... I, uh, one, of my, one of my favorite pastors used to talk about uh, love at first sight. Used to speak to a lot of teenagers. And so, you know, teenagers kind of go, ooh, you know, this kind of love. You know, there's this kind of idea of love at first sight. Am I the only one? Have you guys heard of this? Love at first sight. You know, we were in love at first sight. Um, and I love what he says. He says, I, I don't believe in love at first sight. I don't believe that's a real thing except for the first time a parent sees a child. That's the only love at first sight there is. There's no other love at, love at first sight. But at least as Mark seems to record it, when Jesus saw these men and these men saw Jesus, something happened. Somehow they just knew. They saw a man who could be trusted. They saw a man filled with mystery and power and amazement. They saw a man with authority. They saw a man who was willing. And you know what I think? When they saw Jesus... They fell in love. What other motivation could there be? What other motivation would cause them to drop their nets at once? What other motivation would, would cause them to, to walk away from their, their fathers and their families, to walk away from their past, walk away from, from their life, walk away from their, their trade, What other motivation other than complete and utter love could move these men to drop everything and follow him? How about you? Are you here because you've been indoctrinated into a denomination or, or some sort of theological or moral system of belief? 
Or are you here today because you are head over heels in love with the person of Jesus Christ? The one with authority to cast out demons, to cleanse you of all your sins. The one who places his hand on you and is willing to, to, to heal you. That same one who cast out demons in the synagogue, healed Simon's mother-in-law when she had a fever, and touched the leper, touched the leper that same one calls out to you. He calls to you in the same way he called the men along the shore that day. He calls you to follow him. He calls you to, to give your unshakable loyalty to him. He calls you to fall in love. In just a moment, we're going to enter into a time of communion. And uh, if you've never been with us before, uh, communion is a, the Lord's Supper. It's something we, it's a tradition. It's a part of our, our, our church and our culture. We, we think it's super important. And so we have three tables set up around the room with candles. And they have the emblems of, of Christ's death and resurrection. The bread, which represents his body, and the cup, which represents his blood. And uh, during, in, in just a moment, I'll say a prayer and I'll dismiss you to go to these tables. And uh, it is a time for you to commune, to remember Christ, to remember who he is, to remember maybe some of that love that's been waning. But it's also a chance for you to respond. Maybe, uh, maybe your life has been consumed with all kinds of other things. Maybe right now the authority of God through the Holy Spirit is speaking into you, casting out things and God is compelling you to this place of, of confession or repentance. If that's you, then we're here to receive you, and I'll be happy to do that and pray for you. If there's other ways we can serve you. Maybe, maybe you're ready, like Simon and Andrew, to, to say, I'm in. Maybe you've confessed your life and given your life to Christ, but slowly you've been taking it back. Maybe today's your day fall in love with the person of Jesus Christ again, to enter into the mystery of his love and the willingness of his authority and his willingness to move and to transform your life. If that's you, maybe you're ready to give your life to him in baptism. That's where Mark begins. That's where it starts. Confess, repent, and be baptized. Man, we would love to welcome you into his kingdom, into his family today. So in just a moment, I'm going to say a prayer. And if God's put it on your heart to respond, then I'm just going to move to the front. I'll be happy to receive you, pray for you. That's why this church is here. Don't hold back. I don't want you to feel embarrassed or discouraged. That's what we're about. We're family. We do this together. All of us have fallen short. All of us have been a victim to sin. And so I, I encourage you and invite you to come. And during that time, I also invite you to take in the emblems of Christ, to celebrate communion, to remember him. Maybe as you take these elements, share with someone why you love Jesus. Not, not why you came to church this morning. Why do you love Jesus? What would it be like for you to remember that love? And if he called you today, would you be willing to drop everything and follow him?
Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you so much for your word and the power of your word to, to move us and shake us. I pray that uh, that living and active word, Father God, would do a work on us. That, that right now, even the, the call of your son, Jesus Christ, to those men along the shore, that, that we would feel all of the weight of that call on us even now today. Father God, that, that we would put ourselves in that position of what, what, what would I be willing to walk away from? Would I be willing to walk away from to answer the fall of God and the call of God? And so God, help us today. Guide us. Father, through your son, Jesus Christ, we know through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, we know that we have life and life to the full. We know that through him, all of our sins are forgiven. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, but through Christ, we've been cleansed, made white as snow, and we remember the work that he has done as we take this time of communion. So, Father God, fill us now with your spirit and conviction. Move us and shake us. Let us gaze into your face once again and find, find that thing that causes us to love you deeply, passionately, and with abandon. Father God, we love you, and in your son Jesus' name, everyone together says, amen. I dismiss you to a time of communion and response.